welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Mailbag! Mailbag! Oh, Mailbag. look at her. She's on time. She's on point. <laughs> I got it in there three times, just in case. There we go. <laughs> Joe? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about New Moon some more, Joe. It never ends, does it? <laughs> I love it. This is one of my favorite things is when mailbags beget more mailbags. So mm -hmm. listener Victoria has written into us in response to the email that Tea Books and Chocolate sent, um, kind of connecting to the same idea of fandom and uh, right. the divisive response to the series. Mm hmm. Yes. So there's a ton of things about, you know, a problematic relationship that we may have to famous texts and so on. But then Victoria ends this by asking about our thoughts on fan culture, specifically mm. around Twilight. So what do you two think are the fundamental differences between a toxic and a healthy fan? And what are the best worst fan experiences that you two have had? Oh, it's such a good question, because I think it's really slippery, actually. Mm -hmm. I think when you're involved in a healthy fandom, you can enjoy the product without it, like, taking over your life. Like, I don't think right. it's healthy when a fandom encroaches on sort of every aspect of your life, or when you can't have sort of civil conversations with people who don't mm -hmm. love the thing you love. Like, I don't know about you, Joe. I don't know if you interact on threads at all. Do you use no, that? No, I have, I have refused to succumb to that. <laughs> okay, so I activated an account when it first started, but I've not really used it. But I do have to confess that I totally get suckered into clicking on the threads previews that come up in my Instagram feed. Oh, like, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm falling for it because I know that these are the most clickable things. But Juicy. There's like this theme, at least in what I get served. So, you know, blame the algorithm with like Taylor Swift fans who are just like Ooh. rabid, but mm -hmm. also like really mad at the idea that somebody might be critical of like a white woman billionaire. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, like she, she's not a precious flower we have to protect at all costs, folks. <laughs> she's a billionaire. When we say like <laughs> eat the rich, like that includes Taylor Swift. Um. Mm -hmm. And I just notice how that's a discourse that can really get toxic really very quickly because I think people's identities are very much wrapped up in their feelings about a figure like Taylor Swift. Right. And I don't think that's healthy. No. I mean, for me, the big thing is you can be a fan of something, but you should always be open to criticism or yeah. you yourself should be able to take that step back and say, okay, uh, can I look at this objectively and understand that there may be things that aren't super great about it? And I think for some people that is really difficult yeah because it's yeah. part of the identity that they built for themselves you know one of it's not one that i subscribe to but i've seen a lot of negativity around the star wars universe in terms of oh, fandoms yeah. where yeah. people have so much nostalgia like their entire adult lives has been informed by viewing star wars as a child so you know when the prequel series came out uh people wanted to disavow it because it wasn't their star wars yeah. and you know the idea of even introducing people of color into the mix into what was a predominantly white text in space and just being so resistant to change because it's quote-unquote not theirs anymore yeah i think that's part of it right is the possession that comes along with fandom sometimes that um mm -hmm. 
makes it hard for things to like grow and reflect contemporary society, <laughs> like all those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Star Wars is such a good example. My brother has just started showing Groot the Star Wars movies. Okay. And it was really interesting because they started with episode one, Phantom Menace, which, you know, Mm. as like an old school Star Wars fan, my brother was not traditionally someone who liked Jar Jar Binks, but he was like, yeah, but if you're watching it with a six-year-old, like Mm -hmm. Jar Jar Binks is amazing. He's every six-year-old's favorite character. And that's- Obviously. Yeah. And it's been interesting for him, I think, to see like, oh, this was the point of the movie. (laughs) Like mm-hmm. it was for little people. Yeah, yeah. It was for kids. And also because Star Wars, I mean, not to take a complete side road tangent, but Star Wars was 80% about the marketing and sales yeah, of toys. ancillary products. Like we're trying to sell toys. So yeah, it it's it's one of those things where I think fans also need to remind themselves that you are not a special precious little gem and everything revolves around you. Sometimes it's about other people and other fans and new fans even. Yeah, actually that's something interesting. So I am as you know, Joe, big Formula 1 racing fan. Mhm. I feel like that's going to surprise listeners by the way. <laughs> It's true, everybody. I am. And that's a place where it can be quite hostile to new fans. I think one of the best things that has happened to Formula One is the Netflix Drive to Survive series, which brought a whole bunch of people into the fandom. It brought Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of new like TikTok content creators. A lot of young women have come into the sport and people have had to make space for that. And I think there's almost a grudging recognition on the part of like maybe – more traditional f1 fans that like oh the sport has grown like tremendously because of these people we get more races a year we get more content Mm -hmm. we know more about the drivers like there's all kinds of things that are like better because there's more people involved and um that's not to say there aren't toxic jerks because they totally are always but i do think that that's a really good example of how like making something more accessible to more people has a net positive result for the thing that you love. Mm, That's interesting because my example for this, you know, just to really lean into a queer stereotype was going to be RuPaul's Drag Race. Nice, nice. So obviously the show has exploded in popularity over the last decade. You know, it's now Emmy winning. RuPaul has won a bunch of awards for it. So it's very much entered into mainstream consciousness. And you see the changes that have been reflected on the show as it becomes more popular and it's being consumed by a larger audience, Mm -hmm. which is to say that often the not so nice queens or the ones who get the quote unquote villain edit will end up getting absolutely trashed online. So people have their specific queens that they want to support. And the funny thing is every queen has their own dedicated fandom, even the ones who are the villains or the people where you're just like, who could possibly like that person? They have fans because every product has its own fans. Like Mm -hmm. everything is somebody's favorite, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't appeal to you. But it's forced some people to soften the way that they perform because they don't want to be exposed to the kind of online vitriol, even to the point where the judges' criticisms have softened because I think even they don't want to wade into how toxic the fandom can sometimes get. Mm -hmm. But it's often deeply racist. There was a period of time where RuPaul refused to let female performers on the show or trans performers because her definition of drag was men dressing up in female aesthetics. And so the show has had to progress and stuff. 
but it happens in these fits and starts and it's actually changed the content of the show as you said with formula one sometimes for the betterment so now we actually have like we had one season i think two years ago where five different queens came out as either non-binary or trans and it was kind of amazing (laughs) but at the same time it's it's really happening in these sort of like lightning bottle moments and it can be uncomfortable to watch in the moment particularly when you then think oh the show is actually responding to the way that fans want it to as opposed to saying what can we do to make the best show so sometimes it results in good changes and other times it's like oh we're playing catch up with the culture well this is and this is the question of fan service right like is mm-hmm. it is it good is it bad is it always one thing or the other I know that a lot of European Formula One fans are really frustrated by the drive that the sport has to gain fans in the U.S. Formula sure. One has never been popular in the U.S. It's always been nope. European motor racing series primarily. Yeah. And Drive to Survive has made it really popular. There's a lot of big personalities on that show. They're really mm. sort of like ready-made for the American media market. Right. and. Formula One has leaned into it. There's three races in the U.S. now. There's yeah, there's money to be made. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of teams like launching their, you know, every year you get a big like livery reveal and a big car reveal. A lot of those are happening in the U.S. now. And I think mm. that's been really hard for European fans. Right. Partly because, and maybe this ties in a little bit to what you were talking about, Joe. It's like people who think that they have this niche interest that like belongs to them and then mm-hmm. – you know, maybe they feel like they're left out of the media landscape in other ways. Like, obviously, like, white Europeans are not left out of the media landscape. But <laughs> the idea that, like, No, but it's know, something that was just mine, and now yeah. suddenly it's becoming popular, and I have to either share that space or realize that it might be moving beyond what I want it to. And it is funny. Like, the, <laughs> the Miami Grand Prix this year, which was new last year. This was its second year. And they did, like, this big, almost, like football style intro of like all the drivers and Mm -hmm. it was really funny because the guy they hired to do the announcing like couldn't pronounce any of the european names so there's this monogasque driver named charles leclerc and he called him chuck leclerc (laughs) 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 so you know sometimes you're like oh maybe maybe no Mm-hmm. But it was, or but you maybe know to get the gig, you need to be able to perform the job. <laughs> but it did make for an awful lot of good social media content. Oh, I bet you know, and that's the kind of thing where even though it's a gaffe, it works in the benefit of the people who are trying to gain more publicity and more notoriety. Because totally. yeah, that thing goes viral, and all of a sudden, ooh, all of a sudden we're getting a bigger footprint. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I don't know if we're really addressing Victoria's question head on here, but I do think like a big part of being able to be a healthy fan of something is to recognize when like things aren't for you and being okay with it. And being okay with like being part of something and maybe letting other pieces go, like everything changes over time, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes things change with you and you're still really into it. And sometimes things change in a way that you feel distant from and and trying not to just be a dick to the people who are still enjoying the thing. Like, mm-hmm. Maybe that's the difference between toxicity and, and health. There we go. I think we solved it. Oh, we're so good. 